Welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. In this bonus make, we discuss with Michael Pierre the creation of his Dan Chair, now a part of the permanent collection of the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture. From the harvesting of the wood to the markings on the legs, every inch of this chair is a narrative embedded with meaning. An excellent article about this piece came out in the April 2019 issue of American Craft Magazine, and we will provide a link on the website. Let's take a deep dive into the Dan Chair. Michael's interpretation of a classic African low chair. This is a bonus make with Michael Priere, and we are going to talk about your Dan chair, which uh, there was a wonderful article in American Craft. When exactly did that come out? Was that... Uh... Uh, September, October, I think. Yeah, September, October. And the author is wonderful, uh, Seth Rodney. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, he's a, an incredible writer, and he mm-hmm. does a really good job. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna sort of delve in depth with the idea and creation and the materials behind this mm-hmm. chair. So if you wanna, mm-hmm. I don't even want to paraphrase what it, the piece is about. I'd like you to you know, sort of go into that. So this is the Dan mm-hmm. chair. Yeah. Well, let me just talk about how it came about um, because that kind of segues into into what it's about. Um, I had met um, Bill Jewell, who was a builder in Virginia, and he had come across, I think it was a a historic mill somewhere down in Virginia, and they were cutting down these big old trees that had been there when the mill was there, you know, when it was functional. And he said, well, what are you guys doing with them? So we're just chipping them up. And he says, no, leave them. You know, I'll, I'll come pick them up. And he did. And so he basically started collecting wood from historical sites all over Virginia. His uh, business then became Historical Woods. That's the name of it. And he started giving it to makers uh, to do whatever they wanted with it. And I happened to meet him through um, Tom Hucker. I don't know how. I, I was out with Tom, and Tom had to meet with him for some reason. And so we, you know, we met at the uh, Chelsea Hotel. <laughs> I lived around the corner from the Chelsea Hotel in those days and um, kind of hit it off. And so he said, well, you know, I'd like, you know, do you want to do something? You know, and I said, sure. And as I thought about it, I asked him if he had any wood from Mount Vernon or um, Monticello, because those were both plantations that had slaves. That being African-American, you're just so aware of so many aspects of America that aren't part of the common knowledge. How, how much African-Americans have contributed to this country in all kinds of ways. And so uh, that was the, the stimulus. And then I had been looking at this style of chair for a long time and wanting to build one, which is it's basically a style of chair that it is in uh, what is the Bight of Africa, the uh, Guinea, Ghana area. And uh, 
that area was called at certain points it was called the ivory coast the gold coast and the slave coast depending on what was being extracted and uh, so it and it's it's a chair that's actually constructed there aren't many african chairs that aren't carved from a solid piece of wood i don't know whether it's influenced by european chairs there are some uh african chairs that kind of came about from European contact. But this is, it's, it's actually a very squat little chair uh, in Africa. I mean, they almost, it's right on the ground and, and they kind of slump into it, you know. But uh, again, it was it was that curve of the back. Again, that, that subtle curve. And, and the, the directness of the joinery. It's really one, two, three, two, four, six, eight pieces and they're all you know uh joined together in a very simple direct way uh the legs go through the the seat all the way to the back and the legs in the front terminate in the seat it was something that just again it was just one of these resonating images so for those of you out in podcast land, we'll have pictures of the chair that Michael's talking about and also the, the Dan chair that Michael has made after being influenced. So Right. It just was something that, you know, at, at first I hadn't really fully conceived what it meant to me, but it did have meaning. So as I made it, several things happened. One, I wanted it to have a graphite finish. One, to unify the woods because... Poplar's not all that interesting, and, you know, the, the uh, pecan wasn't anything, you know, spectacular either. But I wanted it to be of a piece. You know, I didn't want it to be parts. I wanted it to be conceived as this whole whole thing. And I'd been fascinated by trying to produce a graphite finish. Everything you put on top of graphite kills that sheen. Uh, it just is one of those those things that, you know, wax, grease, you know, any finish, it just goes kind of black. That came important to me with that. So I had to experiment and I'd used, been using graphite powder. I mixed it with uh, lacquer and sprayed it. And, you know, it just doesn't carry that same sheen that graphite has. You know, if you ever had a soft pencil and rubbed it on paper, there's that silveriness that just is, is just elegant and beautiful. I came across some cake graphite. It basically uh, has a binder in it, a clay binder. And so the, 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 uh, if you rub on the powder graphite, it just, you just comes right off on your clothes on you. But the binder resists that to some degree, uh, huh. you know? And so I painted it, the spray paint, uh, to kind of, um, give it some surface underneath you know it's kind of like i don't know if you've ever done um, gold leaf and uh then i just rub the the graphite onto all over it and i take a yellow i mean a white scotch bright pad and buff it yeah and that's it and is the finish very fragile or does it come off on your hands it's no it doesn't come off on your hands i mean if you probably just rubbed your hand on it, it would probably would. And that's why it's it's in some ways ideal museum piece. It what it'll do is it'll pick up oils from your hand and then turn it'll it fingerprint. Dark. Right. Um but you know there was there was no use for these pieces particularly. I mean he showed he he created a couple shows 
There was one at MIT at the Furniture Society. He'd been trying to get galleries and museums to be more interested in them. I mean, they had, you know, I mean, um, Gary Knox Bennett did a piece. Um, I mean, a lot of well-known people had have done pieces. Anyway, um, so he died. Uh, he had cancer and died. And uh, his wife gave back to the makers, you know, all the pieces. So I'd had it around for a while. And then one of the Philadelphia uh, furniture shows, I thought, ah, I'm going to just show this, you know. So I wrote up a piece about it. And basically, the art statement is, is that this was an expression of my pride in being an African-American and how, you know, acknowledging how much African-Americans have contributed to this country and how unacknowledged that is. I mean, and I'll give you a copy of that so you can put it up too with it, um, of the statement. Okay, that would be, that would be wonderful. Uh, and, uh, and it, was, it was really kind of, it was the first time I'd actually verbalized it in that way, you know, because there, it was a pride. You know, there is, you know, I mean, you're who you are should be something that you feel good about. And part of the African-American experience has been that's been robbed of them. The average African-American, you know, you're you're always been seen as inferior as and people wonder why the conditions that they find themselves in are the way they are. Well, it's because of the circumstances they find themselves in. You know, they're no, you know, they slavery, Jim Crow. Uh, I read a book about them and how the uh, how during the Civil War, a lot of slaves uh, escaped to the north to the to the Union soldiers, and the, the the labor and effort that they put in was amazing. I mean, how important that was to the success of the, the Union soldiers to build uh, fortifications and, and lodgings and so forth. And it just, there's all this story that's just unheard of. That's that's the inspiration of it. And uh, when I did the, when I showed it at uh, the, the uh, Smithsonian Craft Show, uh, just so happened coincidentally that uh, one of the curators of the newly opened uh, uh, Museum of African American History and Culture was came through, and she saw it, and she says, "I have to have this." And that would that would be the Smithsonian Museum of right. African American yeah. History and Culture. Just want to clarify for people. And uh, so that's the story of it, really. I mean, I'm, I'm very honored that it's there. And it, it's actually some wonderful kismet in the sense that that's where you first started seeing a lot of things with exactly. the Smithsonian exactly. as a child growing exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And I do, I do give the Smithsonian a lot of credit for, you know, I mean, another example is that it's a free museum. And, you know, I was, uh, I was going to the Natural History Museum in New York City. And there was a family ahead of me of husband, wife and two kids. It cost them $100 to get into the museum. And you think, what in the world? It should be free for all, everybody up to 16. You know, that, that, I mean, it's just a crime. I mean, you go to Europe, museums in Europe, and you don't pay anything. Just go in, you know. I mean, yeah. it's this whole for-profit idea that mm-hmm. America has gotten in its head is just, it's mm. absurd. 
Right. Well, and then there's also the larger issue of really what role do arts play in society. But we will not go down that rabbit hole because I, okay. the, fe- <laughs> I the yes, I have the feeling, Michael. I mean, we're going to be talking to you at least once or twice more in the okay. near future. <laughs> Absolutely. We've only scratched the surface, but but speaking of scratching the surface, I think it's also important to talk about how you detailed this pieces and and the and the details you put in the armrest and and the way you scarred the legs because I also think that is a a crucial element in the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe elaborate on those for us a bit. Yeah, yeah. The the top rail, the backrest was. I mean, there are several ways I could have integrated that and the supports but i just kind of felt that there was a needed for some kind of boss some kind of physical something something there and uh so i just started carving them um that that was it i just it's pretty much hand carved leaving your tool marks it appears yes well i you know i i kind of believe in that in a way i mean you know you're hand making something and if it looks like it came out of a machine how does it identify itself you know, so I do believe in leaving tool marks in, in place, especially on end grain and where where you can. And it's also tactile. When you sit or, or touch something, you're picking up little information. And I think that that's really it's important. It's part of the it's part of the experience. So that, that was what really influenced that. Um, the scarification was really an effort to be more demonstrative, for the piece to be more demonstrative of what I was expressing. And it's a technique called ukibori, which is a Japanese technique of producing, getting a raised relief. And I'm, I'm sure other places in the world probably do something similar to that, of getting a raised relief rather than an incised relief. So what I did was took steel cable and hammered it into the leg after I shaped it and then turned it again until it almost that almost disappeared and then you steam it I just put a damp cloth and iron and it swells the compressed wood grain and it pops up into higher relief something you can feel and view and that's really just an example of of showing the wound of being African-American that's what that's all about the damage that a lot of, I mean, you know, I, I feel myself as an African, I feel myself so fortunate in so many ways, even though I experienced the, the consequences of, of racism in this country in many ways, too. But I just have such empathy for those who haven't had the opportunities that I've had. I find the stain of slavery on this country is a stain that will never be removed, even no. after 160 years until we finally deal with the issue of race and have some version of a truth and reconciliation commission. I agree. Yeah, I I agree with that. And, you know, I felt that there was a slow movement in that direction. But this political environment right now has shown me how deep that racism is. Yeah. And I could go into talking about how, how and why, but... If anybody wants to get an understanding of that, they could read a book called Cast by, I can't remember her first name, but last name is Wilkerson. It, it's, it really, really kind of clarifies that whole thing because, it, one, it's not a unique phenomenon. 
how people get stigma, a group of people become stigmatized within a culture. Two, it kind of makes more sense looking at it that way than just looking at it as pure racism. Because what is that? It's so amorphous and has been because, you know, people don't want to deal with it. So it's, it's a way of looking at it. And uh, I've been reading a lot. I mean, there's there's another book called The Half That's Never Been Told uh, and The Brides of American Capitalism. And basically it's talking about America becoming a financial power was based on cotton crop. And it was, you know, on slave labor that this you know this country rose to be such a uh, financial giant right and yeah just i mean just so many so many stories of, of what this country you know and i love this country you know i don't want to i don't want to in any way uh, say that that i don't love it i do as much as i'm not a fan of nationalism i think I love the experiment that this country is. I just wish it could more fully meet its potential. Well, and I think patriotism is what we have, not nationalism. Right. 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 There's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And there we go down the political rabbit hole. Um, I think it was all for all for a good cause. But yeah, I think it's unavoidable on the subject. <laughs> I think it is unavoidable on the subject. And thanks for the, the frank, honest discussion on race. And again, I'm sure we will talk. Okay, great. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or a direct download from our website, y-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash podcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening.